This is Eric Ludi, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and see the church of Jesus Christ built strong and stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this message is an encouragement to your soul. So I have a really cool graphic uh, to go with uh, my title, and it's called The Unfinished Castle. And I'm going to give you some insight into this message even before we start, and that is that The Unfinished Castle is me, it's also you, or I could say it's us, but that I'll explain that as we go, because sometimes I have a title that doesn't make sense until the very end. This is one of those. So I'm giving you a little insight as we sort of embark to let you know that there is something unfinished, and I have a craving for it to be finished. So there's four parts to this message. Uh, the first one is, the whole concept of birthday blessings. Today is my birthday. We, for those of you that are local, know that because of Nathan Johnson this morning. Uh, two, special dates in God's calendar. Three, if you did have a birthday blessing, a BTB, how would you spend it? And four, here's how I would spend my BTB. All right, aren't you guys intrigued? Uh, yeah, this is an unusual message. I'm going to acknowledge that up front, but I don't like normal messages anyways. Have I ever given a normal message? All right, a birth, the birthday blessing. So I have a belief. Now, it has been established over many, many decades of my life. And by the way, some of you are intrigued by how old I am today. Uh, this is my birthday, uh, and I am 53, which is an awkward Age And I don't know, 52 is like the, how many days it took them to build uh, the wall around Jerusalem and Nehemiah. So that's a, you know, there's a biblical uh, sense to that. 53, it's like, what do I do with that? So I've been thinking, okay, I'll add the five and the three together and get an eight. And that's a good biblical number. So, you know, you always have to use your mathematical skill uh, no matter what age you are. But I'm a firm believer that with a birthday comes a blessing. And so Leslie's birthday is, was yesterday. It's a day before mine. And so we always get grouped together. And many of the, the when I'm actually approaching the 17th uh, of December, I'm pondering this blessing because I look at it as a tangible thing, almost like I would call it an ask. Like God leans in and he says, Eric, how can I bless you? And many of my birthdays, I have said, I want you to give my birthday blessing to Leslie. And I, I think God has trained me in this, this mentality that I'm going to share with you as we progress, that it truly is better to give away your blessing than to hog it up and ask for, you know, the Camaro. That is the worst way you could waste your birthday blessing. Your birthday blessing is a strength in your life. And I want you to remember that. Okay. So here's how I describe the birthday blessing. And it's an expected grace based on the premise that God delights in, really, in, in special occasions and is a really, really good father. You know, just in the human sense, you know, we know that God is a, is a good father. And so what we see is in scripture, this concept of how much more so would God as a father do something? So that's, that's part of my premise, but I'm going to give you more of my, my basis for the birthday blessing or the B2B. You know, you could call it that if you want. But 
I believe that God is intimately acquainted with our lives and desirous to celebrate at every turn. That he sees moments in our life where piles of stones were built and he desires to revisit those. It's not just us that need to try and remember and say, hey God, this was special to me. But it's that God wants to bring us back to that and say, this is special to me. That the high points or even the low points where God broke through in our life are actually very dear to him and he's very good at keeping a calendar. That he has historically, if you think about this, he's the one that came up with the idea of a calendar. He's the one that came up with seasons and days. And even though the Jewish calendar is a little different than ours, uh, in the Gregorian uh, sense, we are still, I, I have a hunch that God is very good at our calendar. That he's not lost, like, well, it's not Jewish, so I can't follow it. My guess is he's very acquainted, and there's reasons why I think that. Because I have, what, 53 years under my belt, and I have watched God consistently give grace in certain situations. And I'll, I'm going to walk through that, but this is my premise that I'm going to start with, that it's my birthday, therefore I have a blessing. I lean in expectantly, knowing that I have a good father who is always like wrapping a present in the other room. He's like, hey, stay out, Eric. No, you're not allowed to take a peek in here. You know, because he loves to give good gifts to his children. And that is a premise that most of us, I, I think, skip over. It's like, oh, yeah, it makes sense, Eric. But it's actually a very endearing quality of our God. So a quick survey of God's passion for dates and times of year. Now, I'm just going to give you one sampling. Now, this is such an extraordinary sampling that it should do enough to convince you that God is interested in dates. And that when certain times of year come, they become very, very special. There's piles of stones all over the place. It's like God says, did you see this pile of stones? Do you remember this pile of stones? Do you remember what I did? All throughout Jewish history, God, every time we get around to the month of Nisan, which is their first month of the year, which is more like our late March, April, and so that's when they are starting the year, which makes a lot of sense if you ponder it. It's like, why do we start in January? January 1 is the worst time, especially if you're in Colorado. That doesn't feel like a new year, right? It just feels cold. Whereas if you were to start, you know, somewhere right around, you know, April, huh, that, that sounds really nice. And it, it actually makes sense. This is a new beginning. And that's the way it is in the Jewish calendar. So I'm just going to show you just the history of this one. It's, and I can almost say it's three days, but I'm just going to be general because I can't prove some of this. Some of it is just tradition amongst the Jews, okay? But it, it's not tradition that it happened in this month of Nisan. It's that what dates it happened on. I'm, I'm pretty convinced it was in this little three-day sector of the month of Nisan. Sort of the same three days. I don't know if you ever remember anything about the cross, you know, Jesus dying and rising again. Yeah, those three days, okay? So Nisan, which is the first month. Exodus 12, 2. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. See, it's even a command. God knew what he was doing. He was building a storyline, a place where new beginnings could unfold. So in this time, according to the Jews, this is the time of creation. So Nisan would have been the time that the earth was created. Huh. And the earth is going to be recreated 
in this same time. Noah is going to exit the ark onto dry land in this same time period. So you have a new beginning to earth again, even after the first creation. Genesis 8, 13, and it came to pass in the 601st year in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. So then I'm going to add, so as I go through this, then I'm going to add a bold one in there to give you the point that God doesn't, isn't doing this on accident. That this revolution of the calendar and these very special dates are not an accidental misstep on God's part. And he's like looking back going, that is extraordinary. How did that happen? He is providentially telling a story to us. In this same time period, the same time period of the earth being created, the earth being recreated in Noah's time, Jesus is going to make all things new and he's going to make a new creation. This is the work of the cross, the same time period. Isn't that remarkable? It's also the time of birth. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all born and they died in this first month. Isn't that interesting that the patriarchs, the heritage of this entire people group is going to be started and even finish in this time period. So as a result, it's a time of birth and death. Okay, now that's going to be very, very important to us. In fact, if you were to ask me when Jesus, when do you think Jesus was born? It's really hard for me not to think that he was born in this month and that he died in this month. I mean, come on. I mean, how could I not, how could I just skip over that as a possibility, right? My hunch, even though I don't want to spoil our Christmas season, is that he wasn't born December 25th. That's just a hunch, but it doesn't mean I don't want to celebrate his birth on December 25th. I love doing that. So it's a time of birth, and this is also, it's time of death and birth. This is the time and death and, and the new birth of the patriarch of patriarchs. He is going to die and rise again in this same time period not to be overlooked by us. It's the time of sacrifice. So this is the time that Isaac was bound and the ram was provided. This is the time and the season of Passover. The paschal lamb is offered as a sacrifice and anyone who sticks the blood of that paschal lamb on their doorpost will be spared or passed over by death. So, it's also the time of Jesus, the Passover lamb dying on Passover. Now, most of us know he dies on Passover, right? But how profound is that, that out of all the times and all the seasons and all the calendar dates, that is the day he's going to die. In other words, don't tell me Jesus or God isn't aware of dates. I think he's extremely aware of dates and every day, as the Jews would say, is holy. But there are some other days that are more holy. They're called holy days or holidays. Isn't that odd to think of God celebrating? That God takes a, a special interest in certain days of the year and says, no, celebrate with me. We're usually thinking we're trying to drag God into our celebrations. Like, God, this is a big day to me. I wish it was a big day to you. God's the one that initiated celebration. He's trying to bring us into his celebration. It's the time of intercession. The ram is caught in the thicket and it dies in the place of Isaac. The paschal lamb intervenes at Passover instead of the firstborn of the, of the Israelites dying. It's the first, it's the ram uh, or it's the lamb, the paschal lamb that dies. Esther intercedes on behalf of the Jewish nation in these same three days. 
Isn't that an amazing statement? And she is going to stand in front of Artaxerxes and she's going to, or Asuherah, sorry, and she is going to basically risk her life on behalf of her people. So it's also a time of intercession when Jesus gave up his life that we might live. He was the intervening ram caught in the thicket. It's the time of freedom and emancipation. The Egyptian slavery was annulled in this time period, and, and the entire nation of Israel was set free from their slavery in this time, the same time on the, on the calendar. Haman's plot is exposed and foiled. I'm not sure. He play, Haman's plot exposed and foiled nation. I'm not sure what nation is doing in there, but you guys can you know, finish the sentence somehow of what you think Eric was trying to say. But Haman's plot is exposed. There's an entire, entire conspiracy to destroy this people. There's this people group known as the Jews, which is, by the way, a very present tense issue in our world today, have been under duress since their inception. And here we have an illustration that in this time period, there is a setting free. Now, to add to that, there's freedom from the law of sin and death and justification from a looming penalty that is given to us because of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross in this exact time period in the calendar. It's the time of judgment upon the firstborn. Very interesting statement here, or what we could call the flesh. In other words, there's, for those of you that are hanging around Ellerslie, you know that there's always twos. And the first life is our life in the flesh, but we must be set free and born again so that we can be born of the spirit and so the firstborn life is under judgment in this time period. The death angel is in Egypt is striking down the firstborn. In this time period, the firstborn is being destroyed. Haman is hung. Haman is an Agagite. I know some of you are like, thank you for that information. Uh, noted. However, an Agagite is a descendant of Agag. And some of you are like, still doesn't help. Agag, it was the king of, the, uh, of Esau's uh, heirs or Esau's descendants. Of, so Esau, see, I have to really have to go back far to explain this one. Esau is a firstborn. Remember there were twins in the womb. It was Esau and Jacob. And Esau was born first. And his descendants have always persecuted the descendants of Jacob. And Haman is an Agagite. He's a firstborn. He's a symbol of the firstborn. And he is hung, and as Nathan Johnson would say it, on something that probably was shaped like a cross, even back then in the same exact days, the firstborn is judged. Saul dies in battle. Saul is the first king of Israel. He's a symbol of the firstborn. And in this same time period, when kings go forth to battle, Saul is going to die in battle. It's the time of judgment upon the firstborn, the flesh. And so look at this. We'll add one more to the list. The old man is crucified. Our old man, our firstborn life is judged, is dealt with, is finally addressed. We couldn't address it, but now God in and through his son Jesus is going to address our firstborn. It's the time of first fruits. It's the barley harvest. It's in this time period. And that's the food for animals. I thought that was an interesting uh, thing to throw in. Well, what is the reality in this time, year, time of year? During the barley harvest, Jesus is the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. He is the food of God laid in a Jewish feeding trough. You know, when it says that he was laid in a manger, that's a feeding trough. 
That's not some cozy little crib. That's a feeding trough for animals. Isn't that remarkable? And he is going to be born and laid in a feeding trough during the barley harvest. Isn't that remarkable? It's the time of purity. Lamb without blemish or spot, no leaven allowed for seven days. This is just in the, in the time period. So as it says in Exodus 12, 18, in the first month on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. And Jesus is going to fulfill this in that same time period on the calendar. Jesus is the unleavened bread. He's the unblemished, unspotted, paschal lamb. As Pilate himself says, I see no fault in him. Same time period. In other words, he's going to be examined just as a little sacrificial lamb would be examined for Passover, and he's going to be found without spot or blemish. It's the time of the lamb, Passover. If you were to think of you were a lamb, sort of like we have turkey uh, season where it's the time of the turkey, and uh, don't you feel bad for all these turkeys? I mean, if you're a turkey, your time is coming. And that's the way it was for the lambs. If you're a lamb in Israel, whoo, this is a dark time. This is the time of the lamb. And it's always this time of year where these lambs are set aside for sacrifice. But there's three things that scripture is going to enunciate that lambs are used for. For sacrifice, for food. Remember, they're supposed to eat that lamb as well. And for shelter, which is one of the strangest statements that scripture makes, that a lamb is your shelter? What? Well, it's because it's talking about a capital L lamb to come. You see, in the first Passover, they're going to take the blood of that lamb and smear it on their doorpost, and it's going to become a safety shelter for them. It is going to preserve their home, but that is speaking of a greater lamb to come. It's going to talk about Jesus the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for sin, God become food for us, and God become the clothing of righteousness for the dead in sin. He is going to become a sacrifice, food, and shelter for us in this time of the year. It is the time of the Gentiles, Ruth's arrival in Bethlehem at the inception of the barley harvest. Yeah. And so Ruth, a symbol of the Gentiles, an encouragement to all of us who are outside the pale of the commonwealth of Israel, we're going to see that at this time of year, all those hundreds and hundreds of years later, we're going to see the door to the Gentiles opened up through the great cross work of Jesus. It is a time of the raised up tabernacle. The tabernacle in the, in the wilderness was raised up at this time. Listen to this statement, Exodus 40. On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So what do we see happening during this time, during Jesus' life? This same month, the temple of God, Jesus says, is going to be rebuilt in three days. You tear it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. The resurrection of the perfect tabernacle, Jesus Christ. It's being established in the month of Nisan. Some of you still want to argue with me that God isn't interested in dates. I mean, come on. God is strategically setting up a storyline. It's the time of coronation. David was anointed king over Judah in the month of Nisan. 
So what do we see all these years later? Jesus is exalted to the highest place, given the name above all names, and crowned as king of all kings in the month of Nisan. So one of my favorite statements for this time is it's the time when kings go forth to battle. Now, that was just a statement in the Old Testament. Remember, it's in the context of David having his mishap. He'd always gone out to battle in the, in the spring, but this year he decides to stay home. Remember that story? It's a terrible story in the Old Testament. I mean, it's very helpful and edifying to us if we take its lesson to heart. However, it's not in a positive context. But I want you to see through that fog bank and recognize this is the season, the month of Nisan, when kings go forth to battle. 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, and it came to pass after the year was expired that the, at the time when kings go forth to battle. It's the time when the king of kings went off to battle. Isn't that a great thing? A great mental picture to think of Jesus? It's like, oh, this is the season when I go to battle. Our king went to battle all by his lonesome. He didn't have a big army around him. He went naked to a cross and destroyed all the enemy. That is an incredible picture of what Jesus did in the month of Nisan. So God sees dates. He celebrates too. So that's my premise. I'm just using Nisan as a simple illustration. That's one little gap of the year, right? You take the entire Jewish calendar and it all speaks It all has something to say because God does see the importance of this revolution of a calendar in our life. And even though some of us struggle with the idea that this day is more special than this day, well, it's not that you you need to fall to pieces on a day that's not important. It's just that there is something about it where God says, this is important to me. And so how about you join in my celebration? And so I am convinced that on the day that you arrived, it's a big day to our God, that that is not a small thing. And I recognize it doesn't show up in scripture like, yeah, and -and so-and-so was born on this day, and so therefore we can celebrate it. I mean, I don't know that you were mentioned in scripture that way, by name and your birthday. And yet I am a firm believer that our good father sees these small things in our life and takes great joy in them, that he celebrates the fact that you arrived on this earth, and that he has a plan for your life, and he wants to encourage you even on that day. Okay, so there's, there's part of my premise. The miracles of February 2nd. So February 2nd, for those of you that are familiar with me, uh, first of all, it's, it's uh, Reese's birthday, uh, and so that's pretty special uh, for me. But this is my spiritual anniversary. This is the day that I uh, was awakened and I yielded my life to Jesus Christ. And uh, that's very, very special to me. Of course, some of you could say, isn't that Groundhog Day? And I'd say, no, no, no. Groundhog Day is like, you know, fourth or fifth on the list of what's happening that day. We have spiritual birthdays. We have Reese's birthday. We have a lot going on, right? And those are the things that I'm thinking of. Groundhog Day, I could really care less about. It's also, I think, a satanic high day. Uh, Yeah, someone mentioned that to me too. I go, no, 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 no. That's way down the list that has no power, okay? We have things that God is celebrating. I mean, he's frying some big fish that day. 
And so this next February 2nd, I'm going to be approaching my 34th birthday. Isn't that fun to think of? Now, this isn't February 2nd, but the reason I'm bringing up February 2nd is because it's another birthday. Now, I have a physical birthday and I have a spiritual birthday. And you know what? I approach both of them the same way. I have two birthday blessings each year. Now, some of you could be more creative by saying, I'm not exactly sure what my actual spiritual birthday was. I think it was over this whole week. That's one way that you can get a whole week's worth of blessings too. You should be creative with that. God, I don't remember the exact time, but I just remember it was like around this month. That's not, a, that's, those are some good thoughts. You guys should consider these things. So I should go back to this. So February 2nd, now I've had, what does that mean? 33 celebrations that I have had uh, on February 2nd. And every year I will write down and I'll put a pile of stones what God did that year. And it is always something deeply significant. It doesn't come in the same package. You know, God wraps it in different you know, ways each year, but he has something for me. So when I wake up on February 2nd, even if I wake up in the middle of the night, even if I'm up till 12.01, I'm very aware when February 2nd starts. It is a very, very special day in my life. It's a relational connection between me and my God because I know my God cares about this. And so I am anticipating and I am leaning in because I know God has typically used February 2nd to forge a calling in my life, an understanding of my calling. And I have learned things in and through February 2nd that actually have directed my life in ways that if, I, if it wasn't so intimate and personal, I would just share with you in a second. I would just start reading my journal entries and you would be awestruck in how God has worked in and through this one day in my life to speak to me, okay? Now, that's my spiritual birthday. When we get every year, December 15th, December 16th, and December 17th, you have to imagine what that means, okay? That's December 15th is the day I first met Leslie. I found out her birthday was the next day. Oh, and hey, did you know my birthday is December 17th? So we have grown up with this. We have had a love relationship based around this three-day period, December 15th, 16th, and 17th. And it is always very, very significant in a different way than February 2nd. But God has done extraordinary things in this time period because I lean in recognizing that God desires to bless, that he is celebrating, that he's thinking about it even if I don't. And that's an odd thought for me. Usually I'm thinking, God, you know, why would you care about a day like this? It's not that big of a deal. In fact, as I start to get older, I sort of want to diminish the value of these birthdays too. It's like that. I think it's every two years you go up one year now, isn't it? Isn't there a certain point? Because I 53, do you remember guys when you were younger and you heard of a 53 year old? That's an old guy. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, that's pretty old. Now I'm 53 and I'm, I'm here to testify that it's not very old. Okay, I'm here just to go on record as saying, actually, that's still fairly young. I think 53 is the new 41. Is that how it translates now? <clears throat> 41 used to sound old, too. So here, here's, I, I've built a huge premise for you guys. So what if I had a birthday blessing? Okay, just, you know, hey, this is my birthday. That means I'm expecting a birthday blessing. What if I had a birthday blessing? What would I do with it? So now every year is different. I, I, I reason through this and if I had a birthday blessing, what would I do with it? I'm not going to tell you just yet. 
So it was a couple nights ago, I was lying in bed and seeing it afresh. Now, remember the name of this message, it's called The Unfinished Castle, and I haven't really addressed that at all, and I forewarned you about that. But I remember laying in bed, and it was, I think, early in the morning where I was about to get out of bed. But I, you know, you're just sort of in that half zone where it's your, your time to get up hasn't arrived yet, and so you're sort of happy about that. But it's so close to arriving that you can't really go back to sleep. And so you're in that sort of zone of argument of should I just get up early, or should I just lay here and enjoy the, the warmth under the covers? And so I was in that zone. And as I was laying there, I was praying, and I had this thought, and it was, I guess you could call it of the unfinished castle. It said, there is so much more, and I do not want to settle for what I have now. That the vision I've always had for Christianity, for the church, is that what it says in the scriptures is revealed in and through us as the church starting here in the individual, that I want my life to actually showcase Jesus. And we could all compliment each other and say, yeah, when I squint, I sort of see Jesus in you. But I, I believe that the scriptures mean it, that we as the body of Christ are supposed to be a statement on earth. And I would acknowledge without even duress, that I don't believe we are as big of a statement as we're supposed to be. I believe that there has been, it's sort of like a basketball that got deflated partly. It's not that it's not a basketball, it just doesn't function fully as a basketball. You try to dribble and it goes, punk, onto the ground. And it's like, well, yeah, and you can still shoot it. Have you ever shot a flat basketball? It's not very fun. And I feel like we're kind of like a flat basketball. We're the real deal, guys. We're made of the right stuff. Everything is correct. We have air in us, yes, but we need more. We need more of what God intends to put inside of us, worked inside of us, so that we can function the way we were intended. All right, you guys starting to get a picture of my birthday blessing? what I'm after here. So here's sort of my thoughts. No, this isn't all there is. There is more. Lord Jesus, you died to give us more. Lord Jesus, I want that more in my life. So you can translate that into your life right now. I want you to squirm in the right way in your seat and ponder the same thing. Is there more that you're supposed to go after? Or are you starting to get cozy in your American Christian life? I have always gotten mad at the notion of getting cozy in the American Christian life, and yet that does not remove the propensity from me. I can get cozy just like everyone else can get cozy, and I don't want to get cozy. I want to press forward. I want the more. So the Playmobil Castle, and this is getting closer to uh, where we're headed. So I, I think it was, I don't know, it was Hudson that I gave, uh, that lesson I gave a Playmobil Castle uh, to when he was young. And uh, it's an incredible gift, guys. That was like one of those 
where you don't give any other gifts, you splurge and give one big gift to your child, right? And it's like this huge box. And you remember those uh, times when you were a kid and you came down and all you had was like small boxes and then your brother or something gets this huge box. There's something about size that really speaks the language of a kid. So my dad used to wrap small things in big boxes, understanding how Eric worked. By the way, that was still somewhat disappointing uh, when you start opening up the boxes and you get down to this little ring, you know, underneath. But this was an incredible gift, right? Now, one of the things about being a dad is if there's something that needs to be built, whether it's a model or a Playmobil castle, then the dad almost like it's as much of a gift for him as it is for the, the son. So some of you could wonder about what kind of gift this was that we were giving to Hudson. It's like, Eric, was this a gift for you? Well, maybe, maybe, I'm not sure. But uh, I spent the entire afternoon building this thing. It had so many pieces. It was this huge box, so many pieces. And, you know, so Hudson wandered out of the room quite a few times. Uh, he was pretty young. And meanwhile, I was focused all afternoon in building this castle. So it's an incredible gift, I have to admit, an incredible gift. That to truly enjoy demands an incredible amount of time. And so I'm starting with this as a premise that what God desires is a similar thing. Now, he gives far better gifts than Playmobil castles. Praise God, right? His gifts to us are so exceedingly and abundantly beyond, beyond all we could ask or think on our Christmas list. They are magnificent. And so if I could liken it, it would be like he's giving us a castle in a romantic land far, far away. It's one of these things where it's an incredible depiction of what the Christian life is. It's like, no, I want to build you a castle, Eric. Whoa. And I will rule it, but I want you to live there with me. And it's your life, basically. Now, to understand, you know, this idea of a Playmobil castle, I think is actually somewhat misleading, but also a part help to our understanding of how the Christian life works, where it has all these different pieces that to actually connect the pieces takes tremendous amount of time and diligence. That God is giving us truths. Like, have you ever had it where you start to list all the truths that you know in scripture? And it's just monstrous. It's like a dictionary of truths. Like, whoa, I know a lot. Yeah, but this piece isn't connected to this piece. It's not really holding the thing up. It doesn't look finished. You have the pieces, but it's not what it was intended to be. There's something else that needs to happen. So this was a quote that Nathan brought up in one of his daily thunders. I don't know uh, if that one's even been released yet, but uh, it, it's, it's one of those quotes that uh, we've bantered about many times over the years. And it, it's in his book, Divine Conquest, no, yeah, Divine Conquest or God's Pursuit of Man. The man who would know God must spend time with them. So like the man who's going to build his Playmobil castle, he's going to have to invest some serious time in this. And that is the same that is true with us. You want the more, you want the full picture of what God intends, it's going to demand focus. It's going to demand a givenness. It's going to demand that you set aside other things to finish this project. So here's an adaptation of A.W. Tozer's quote. The man who would know and find God's more must spend digging time with him. So I've used the illustration of if, 
And I remember actually bringing up a whole bunch of uh, little kids up onto the stage. And this is in the time period where, you know, we'd have, I don't know what we called it, but, you know, kiddo time or something. And I remember having all these little kids on stage. Some of you could have been those little kids back in the day. I don't know. And I remember giving an illustration before my sermon. And I said, imagine that I uh, told you guys right now that underneath this stage was a treasure. I mean, of inestimable value. And then I handed you all a, a, a shovel. And imagine this stage was dirt. What would you do? Now, it was interesting because not one of those kids needed me to help them beyond that point. All I needed to do was tell them that there was a treasure there and say that they have a shovel. What are they automatically thinking? I'm going to dig. I, I thought I could dig to China when I was young. My mom told me that on the opposite side of the world was China. And so I started digging in our backyard. And my mom, you know, at first thought it was cute. And then as I kept digging, she started to be concerned uh, about what I might run into. Uh, but long and short, there's something in the imagination of a child that is very eager to dig holes. And if you knew that there was a treasure there, how much more interested are you in digging? Digging is one of the best illustrations of prayer and pursuit of God that exists because it's strenuous. It's hard. You break a sweat doing it. When you go after God, you break a sweat. If you're, not, if you're looking for the version of Christianity where you don't need to break a sweat to pursue God, I don't think you're actually digging. So my mental picture for where we're going here is sort of a combination of all these things. Imagine that this room was your life and God said, okay, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need. I've, I've given you an incredible gift. I've given you all of me. And we're like, okay, where is it? It's, well, it's, you can't see it. It's by faith. So, but this is all dirt. Here's a shovel. Go after it. And so then he gives you like all these pieces and that you're looking for. So you go through the scripture like, oh, I need joy. Oh, I'm supposed to have love. I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you could create this great list of parts. And yet all of these parts need to be gone after. And yet many of us have just a few shovelfuls taken out of the top layer. Yet many of these things are deeper layer attributes. They are deeper layer strength points in our life that if we don't continue digging, we will not compile the parts you ever had one of those moments where you get something in your Christianity and it happens to match something else you have and you put them together and there's a sound like and it locks in and it actually suddenly gives you a whole new strength in your life? Yeah. Imagine if you start putting all of it together. Imagine if you went from having a frame of a home to actually having a home that had a roof on it. Just imagine that step forward. Imagine actually getting it finished in where you could actually walk in and the wind could gust and it wouldn't hit you. I mean, and that, it doesn't even have a door on it, but you could at least stand in this little spot and you could be blocked from the wind or the rain. Those elements have always gotten you, but now in your progression, you're beginning to recognize the preservation of this home. But just imagine how much further God never invented this to be unfinished. And so we are supposed to continue forward. Spend digging time with God. The Playmobil pieces are there, but they don't come in a box. Isn't that frustrating? 
they come buried like treasure in the soil. Now, most kids would find that very exciting. We as adults don't always find that as exciting. God, could you just give me the peace? Show me where it is. Hands just a shovel. He's like, I told you where it is. Yeah, but there's a lot of digging involved in that. Yeah, but that digging is what causes us to appreciate it, what causes us to hold on to this, what causes us to cherish it when we find it. So they come buried like treasure in the soil. God says, dig here. And then we start digging. What we find, what we build, wholly depends on how consistently and arduously we dig. Have you ever had one of those seasons where you dig? You dug really well in that season. And then somehow you, you know, retired your shovel for a season, covered it with bronze, and stuck it in sort of a museum uh, part of your home. It's like, no, I dug once. Yeah, that's my symbol of when I dug back in 82. That isn't the way we're supposed to function. We're supposed to learn through our digging that God answers with things found. And so then we go after more. And I don't know if I could answer the question of if we ever get it all. My guess is even, bef- even no matter who you are on this earth, by the time you know, Jesus comes or we die, there's still a few pieces to your home you still haven't put in. But the pursuit is to see it finished, to see all that Jesus Christ supplied for us installed into our home, being operative in our home, being useful to us in our home. The Hannah model. So this is a great way of summarizing the Hannah story. Uh, She was childless, if you remember, and Elkanah, her husband, loved her, but he had another wife, too, who's didn't have any problem bearing children. And this is torturous to Hannah. I don't know how many of us feel what Hannah felt. Some of you are like, I'm a guy, uh, never really thought about having babies myself. Yeah, but spiritually, that there is something you're supposed to be producing in your life. Fruit, children of the faith, and your life is barren. And what we're supposed to do is be like Hannah. That's the reason the story is there. Do you want to stay the way you are? Are you okay with the fact that you're not bearing fruit? Or are you hungry for it? Because Hannah is going to be hungry for it. So it says, Hannah, this is in 1 Samuel 1, 2. Hannah had no children. Now I'm going to fast forward to 1, 5. The Lord had shut up her womb. You know, I've had the thought multiple times, and I know Leonard Ravenhill had commentary on this too, where he said, what a gift. What a gift that your womb could be shut up. What a gift that all the Playmobil pieces or the castle pieces are not just on the surface and that we have to go after them. You see, if your womb is shut up, what do you have to go after? What do you recognize? I'm barren. God, this isn't the way I'm supposed to be. And so what it causes you to do is cry out. It actually sponsors prayer. When you recognize your barrenness, it's a gift. You know how many great heroes of the faith came out of barren women? I mean, the list is like an all-star cast. What comes out of our barrenness or our recognition of barrenness is something that truly showcases the kingdom of heaven. So Hannah had no children. The Lord had shut up her womb. Now we're at verse 11. She vowed a vow. And then verse 20, she bare a son. 
What is she going to do? God, I'm not going to stop until. God, I'm going to keep pressing this until. I'm going to keep digging until. She also offered up this son to the Lord if she received it, which is not a bad thought too. No matter what God is going to give to you, your first job is to make sure he knows it belongs to him. That's the Hannah model. Hannah had no children, verse 2. She bare a son, verse 20. There's a lot of other things that happen in between. However, many of us stop short of verse 20 in our own life. That we are barren, and then we cry out, and we cry out, and we cry out, and then we stop crying out. And we stop pursuing because we accept the fact that maybe God just doesn't want us to have children. Maybe God didn't intend us to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Maybe God didn't intend us to share the life of Jesus with others so that they would come to a saving faith as well. Oh, maybe he didn't intend that. He did intend it. And so therefore, that burden inside of you is actually supposed to blaze. It's supposed to push you to say, I cannot remain as I am. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. Now, this is a strange... If we just stop the story here, it's, it's really strange and somewhat jarring. And yet, sure does sound familiar... You see, this woman is a, is a Gentile. What claim does she have in this situation? This is the Jews' Messiah. And yet she knows that this Messiah has what she needs. And even though she's a Canaanite woman, she has something that can only be solved by this man. I mean, this is the case for all of us, guys. I, I, maybe there's some of you that are Jewish in here, but I'd say probably most of us are like the Canaanite woman. What hold do we have on the promises of the Jewish Messiah? The fact that we have fast-forwarded all these years and Jesus Christ, we're going to recognize Jesus Christ died for us too, that his work on the cross was also for us, the Gentile who would believe, that is remarkable. And I think we forget that somewhere along the line. But look at what's happening here. This woman has a severe issue. And it says, but he, speaking of Jesus, answered her not a word. Okay, so how are you doing? You dig? <laughs> you dig? Start breaking a sweat. Dig? Dig? Nothing. Obviously, he doesn't intend to give it to you. You see, there's special people out there that find things. And yet there's others, you know, like us that, you know, we dig and we don't find. And so what do you do if you actually start to think you're not going to find something that maybe it's not for you? What do you do? You don't keep digging. You actually retire your shovel because it's hard work to dig. To dig, you have to know that you will find. If you don't know that you will find, you will stop digging. My classic illustration, you don't wait at a bus stop if you don't have the bus schedule and the bus schedule declares that there's going to be a bus there. Why would you just wait on a street corner and think, oh, a bus is going to stop here? 
You wait and you persevere and you endure even in the rain because you know that there is something coming. You dig and you dig and you dig and you dig because you know that he has promised, that he has said it is there. And if you know that, even when it says he answered or not a word, when God is silent, that isn't what stops you. Nothing stops you because there is only one solution to your ailment. And that's the one standing in front of you. And even if he's silent back, he's testing your faith. Do you truly believe that he is the answer? Yes. Then keep going. And his disciples came and urged him saying, uh, send her away for she cries out after us. Translation, this woman is very irritating. Could you get rid of her? Just tell her to go. Obviously you're not going to answer her. She's a Gentile. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, that's encouraging, guys. How do you think you being the Canaanite woman in this story are doing now? He was silent. His disciples are saying, yeah. I mean, could you get her out of here? And he says, yeah, I was only sent uh, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And guess what? She's not one of those. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. See, this is digging, guys. You dig and you don't find. So you dig more. But what if you don't find? Well, then you, you dig more. Lord, I know that you have given me all that I need for life and godliness. I know you are the Messiah. I know that you have supplied me. You finished the work on the cross. You have supplied all the building materials, everything that is required to see my life established. And I know right now it sure doesn't seem like you're paying any attention to me. I can't seem to find any of it. But I refuse, like Hannah refused to stop. I refuse to stop. And I vow a vow. I am going after these things. And Lord, whatever comes out of this life is to your glory. I will never make one moment where I say I did it. You are the one that will get the credit. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Okay, guys, how are you doing right now? You just got called a little dog. By the way, that wasn't a compliment in that culture either. A dog? It's the lowest form of life in the culture. I know some of you are like, a dog was the lowest form of life? I'm so sorry. I mean, I like my dogs too. And yet, that was a way of saying, look, this is not for you. This is the ultimate test, guys. What this woman is going through is going to stop most people right in the very beginning. And Jesus wants to speak to us this morning, and he wants to say, is it going to stop you? When it looks like I'm a, a silent, when it appears that others are going to get what you think you should have, and you think maybe you're overlooked or you're lesser than, are you going to continue after me? Are you going to continue digging? Because there's a lot of things that are going to tell you to put down your shovel. But are you willing to press on and persevere even in the midst of all of this? This is her response. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O oh, woman, Great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed 
from that very hour. That is a shocking story, one that most of us don't quite know what to do with, and yet we're living it right now. We live in that story, we just don't always see it. But when we start digging and we don't immediately find, most of us retire the shovel. Most of us have come to the conclusion that this is for other people, more spiritual people than us. That there are certain people, I remember Leslie and I used to always hear this, there are maybe just a few in every generation that are ever able to discover things. But the rest of us never do. And so when Leslie and I had this great love story, people were like, well, don't get everyone else's hopes up that God writes love stories for everyone else because there's only gonna be like one in 1,000 that ever would have that happen. That is the lie from the devil right there. You come to Jesus, you get healed. And the Syroph- this, this woman, I call her the Syrophoenician woman, the, the Canaanite woman in this uh, translation, she is going to come to Jesus and her daughter is going to be healed. Yeah, we could simplify the story that way, couldn't we? However, she has to endure in faith, believing that that one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has given her what she needs, that he can supply it, that he is a man of love, of mercy, of care, and that if she keeps digging, she will in fact find what he has given her. For all of us in here, many of us have an unfinished castle. And yet the question is, are we satisfied with something unfinished? Or are we desirous to actually see this become precisely what God intended in this generation. I don't really care if we ever get every detail finished before he comes. I just want to go after it. And I don't want to be caught with moss, spiritual moss, growing on me because I started to think I was far enough along. I mean, I at least have walls. These Christians down the road, they don't even have walls. They don't have a roof. I mean, to even say that that's a foundation is laughable. And so I can compare myself with other believers and feel rather smug. Or I can compare myself with the perfect temple that was raised again in three days after it was torn down. And I could say, whoa, I am not quite what I ought to be. Lord, conform me to your image. I want more. Is there a desire for more? Then start digging and don't stop digging. So if Eric has a birthday blessing, what would it be? Lord Jesus, I want more. I want the grace, the spiritual energy to freshly pick up my shovel and dig, unlike I have ever dug before. I want this year, which is now going to be my 54th year of life, if you can believe that, to be my strongest spiritual year I've ever had. I want my marriage to be sharper, to be more intimate, and to be more affectionate than any other year previous. I want my fatherhood to progress and to have more of a sensitivity, more of a care, more of a mercy, more of a long-suffering for my kids, more of a vision, more of an ability to train them than I've ever had before. I want my leadership 
in whatever role I have, whether it's Ellerslie, whether it's the church, to be more spiritually sensitized, more spiritually empowered than ever before. I want my inner life to be sharper, to be clearer. I want my nose to be clear that when temptation or other distractions come, I have an immediate, without even a delay, the ability to say, nope, I want to become what you intend me to be, Lord Jesus. That's the birthday blessing that I'm after. Father, I pray that each one of us would latch a hold of this vision, that each one of us in the body of Christ would not settle, would not accept barrenness at any level. Lord, even if we have small grapes coming out of our vine, Lord, we know that you produce the sort of grapes that it takes two men to carry a cluster out of the land. Lord, we, we desire more. We desire better fruit, bigger fruit. We desire to pick up our shovels today and to dig. Lord, we ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. If you'd like to learn more about Ellerslie, our discipleship programs, or support the ministry financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more.